Welcome to Arise Church, where we exist so that you can experience God. I pray that this message will encourage, inspire, and grow your faith in God. Enjoy the message. Uh, I don't know who this is for, but I just really felt strongly impressed the second ago I was standing over there. Um, there's somebody in this room, and there might even be more than one, I don't know, but there's at least one that you're an atheist from a background, uh, and, and you come in, and what just happened this morning was intriguing to you. And I felt really strongly that the Holy Spirit was saying, um, what you were expecting and why this is intriguing to you is because you are against religion. That's really what you were against. It's not God. And so you're actually an atheist toward religion and what you've been taught about religion and what you've been taught about God. You're not actually an atheist towards God. And I don't know who that's for, uh, but you might find a different uh, experience with God if you will open yourself up to him and say it's not about this church building. It's not even about a rise. It's about his presence. Uh, because I think what you're against is not God, it's religion. Let that sink in. All right, for whoever that's for. Uh, uh, hey, we always want to celebrate as we get started. And uh, 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 I love this. Um, Pastor Pratyash and Ashley took out a team last weekend, went to over 600 homes doing door hangers, got to pray with a lot of people. Yeah. Love that. Got to spend time praying with different people. If you ever want to get involved in outreach ministries, make sure you get with Pastor Pratyash. Wave your hand just so people can see you. Um, and he will connect you, and we would love it. It's a great workout, man. You don't have to go to the gym that day. You go to 600 houses, that's a lot of houses, man. You, that's, that's, you got your steps in. I promise you, I promise you that. Um, can we change that again? We're doing that thing again. Um, so anyway, uh, as we get started, um, our church is unique. I mean, Tampa Bay area is unique, but our church is unique uh, in the, um, the way our church is. Uh, a lot of people are not from here. Anybody notice that yet? So I'm just curious, how many of you are from somewhere up north originally? Like, yeah, all of you, okay, <laughs> basically. So Makia and I, like, we know south, like, um, and so I just got to give some PSAs about southern stuff for a second. And, and one of those southern things is um, uh, when you grow up in the south or around the south, people live in mobile homes, trailers. In New York City, you know nothing about trailers, and you can always spot you New Yorkers because you watched the football game in Green Bay yesterday and you're like, yeah, that's football weather. No, it's not. That is not football weather. That's hide inside in front of a fireplace weather. Pastor Ken last night was watching the game after South Shore with us. He's like, yeah, that's football weather. I'm like, what? He's like, I used to play in that when I was a little boy. And I'm like, yeah, go out there now. You get tackled one time on frozen tundra. But you can always spot you northern people. And in the south, like, like a lot of people live in mobile homes. And there's all these stereotypes about mobile homes. Like, like it's just stupid people that live in them and stuff like that. That is totally not true. I grew up in my teenage years living in a mobile home. Some of the smartest people in the world live in mobile homes. It's not like, like there's stereotypes that surround it. But if you don't know, you don't know. And so like, like one of the, uh, somebody from another country came to me recently. And they were doing outreach type stuff. And they didn't even know how to express it. They're like, they live, they live in these, these houses that move. All right, it's okay. Like, like you know, um, if you live in a mobile home, that's awesome. But people from up north don't know anything about mobile home living. And, um, and so uh, I just want to say, first of all, it's okay. Secondly, they're called manufactured homes. I learned that because when I was a teenager, I worked at Palm Harbor Homes where they build manufactured homes uh, for one summer while I was in high school. And, uh, and if you said mobile homes or you said trailers, oh, they like throw stuff at you. We're not building trailers. We're building manufactured homes. A trailer is what you pull behind your truck. 
And I'm like, it's also what you pull your mobile home to whenever you set it up the first time. It's just a bigger truck. But anyway, and so, um, uh, but, but really, I, I learned recently that uh, Matthew McConaughey lived for years, even after he was a celebrity in a mobile home. Um, this may not um, shock anybody, but Kid Rock lived in a mobile home. I think he still does, <laughs> truthfully. May not shock anybody in this room. Um, uh, but there's certain things when you grow up in a mobile home or around mobile homes. So all of, like, tons of my family had mobile homes, da da da, had trailers. And so um, uh, growing up in them, there's certain things you should know, like, um, like, like the air vents come out of the floor, not the roof. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And when you're a kid, that's the coolest thing ever. Um, for lots of reasons. One, because in the summertime in Florida, it's hot, and you can go to that air vent, you can just lay on top of it, like it's beautiful, like it's, you know, and it's like cools you all off real fast. Uh, same thing happens in the wintertime, you put the heat on, but if you step on that air vent in that metal, y'all, anybody know what I'm talking about? See, I don't know anything about this because you're all New Yorkers. But, but some of us Southerners, like you step on that air vent when the heat's coming through, like it'll burn, it's like an iron, man. Um, another thing you should know uh, growing up in a mobile home is that the, the walls are like paper thin. Like you can hear, there is no privacy when you are in a mobile home. It's paper thin. And so you hear everything that goes on everywhere, which is a bit awkward sometimes. And um, uh, like, for instance, uh, I remember when I was a teenager and I was rebelling and, and, you know, all this before God got a hold of my life. I would come home really late sometimes from parties and stuff like that. And, and literally where I would pull up my car, my mom's bedroom was on the end of the trailer. So I would park like right by it. And no joke, I would turn the car off and I could hear my mom snoring from inside my car. <laughs> no joke. So like I turn the car off here, you know, and so I hear this snoring. So I would sneak in the house, you know, because there's lots of reasons, but I would sneak in the house and, and sneak into the bedroom, go to bed, whatever. And my mom would get up the next day and she would wake me up all mad. I was up all night worried about you. I'm like, Mom, you were snoring from before I got out of the car. I could hear it. So anyway, anybody ever grow up in trailers? You live in trailers? Like, it's, it's trailer people is okay. Like, don't, don't freak out over trailer people. Like, you know, others don't know how to handle it. And here's the ultimate thing about trailer people that you should all know. You are in good company. You know why? Because God actually prefers to live in a mobile home. I say, what in the world are you talking about, Pastor Brent? Let's begin to unpack it a little bit. There was, this, uh, there was this fisherman named Peter. I like Peter because he's a fisherman and I'm a wannabe fisherman. I'm the fisherman that goes fishing but never catches fish. I just like being on the water, really. And uh, so Peter was actually a fisherman that actually caught fish. So uh, he was fishing one day. Jesus calls him. He starts following Jesus, becomes a disciple, becomes the most famous of Jesus' disciples, leads the early church. And many years after the time of Christ, about 30 years-ish, after the time that Jesus is crucified, uh, he writes this letter that we now call First Peter. Um, it's somewhere in the mid-60s that he writes this letter, and uh, this, this dispersion had happened because of, of, uh, of, of persecution, and so the church gets persecuted, which God used for a lot of good because the church tends to hub together. We still do this. It's still a problem to this day. We love to get together, but we don't like to go out. Like, we've got to come in and have church, but we don't want to go out and have church. You do know you go out and have church. So, so we come together, and so persecution happened that actually made the church leave, leave Jerusalem and leave the different cities and, and go out. And so one of those persecutions happened in an area called Asia Minor, and all these Christians get dispersed all over through a lot of different cities. So Peter writes a letter to these dispersed Christians that are kind of persecuted and kind of fleeing for their lives, uh, trying to find work, different things they were trying to do. So he writes this letter. Now we call it First Peter. And in 1 Peter chapter number 2, uh, by the way, I do apologize. In your worship guide notes, I think it says chapter 1. I made a typo on that. But 1 Peter chapter number 2, verses 4 through 10, uh, this is what it says. He's writing, and he says, As you come to him, the living stone. I, I love that, that terminology. 
rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. You're being made into a spiritual house. Think about that. You, in this room, are being made into a spiritual house. Beautiful. To be a holy priesthood. To be a holy priesthood. Look at your neighbor and say, hey, priest. Huh. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, this stone, uh, the stone the builders have rejected, or the stone the builders rejected, has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. And then this famous part of the verse that many of you memorized when you were children, if you grew up in church, or at least have heard it many times, verse 9 says, but you are a what? Chosen, chosen people. A what? chosen people and a what you are a chosen people around this room you are a chosen people now you are a royal priesthood a holy nation God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light once you were not a people but now you are a people of God once you had not received mercy but now you have received mercy are y'all with me this morning um, I just want to talk to you for a few moments on this galaxies and stars concept and take it from a different direction than we might assume I would take it. Um, and if you're taking notes, uh, the first note you would have is this. You are a living temple. You are a living temple. That verse 5 said, you, like the living stone, are being built into a spiritual house. You're being built into a spiritual house. Think about this. He's, he's connecting you with the temple. The temple. The temple that had been there for years. It had been destroyed a few times and recreated, but it was on the same temple mount. It was the temple. Now, to you and I, this is kind of common knowledge, or you may not get the, the full extent of what he's saying right here. Um, but to the first century readers... This is wild. This is crazy. This is incredible because the temple of God was a special place. The temple of God for generation after generation after generation was the place where people went to experience God. It's, they, they would leave and walk for, for days or weeks or months. They would spend incredible amounts of money trying to get to the temple of God. Why? So that they could experience God in that temple. And so they desperately wanted to get to that temple. It was a special place. But as oftentimes happens, whenever you create a special place like that, a, a temple of God, a cathedral, something that looks incredibly glorious, that costs a lot of money and is a lot of work, if you're not careful in what frequently happens is that that place becomes an idol. The place that you go to worship becomes the place you do worship. So Many of us grew up in churches that were like that. Many of us have seen it over the years where, where the building, instead of becoming a place that was sacred because we were in it, the building itself became sacred. You, you do realize, and I've preached this so many times, and if you come from a Latin background, especially you need to hear this, some of you, because you grew up in a very strong environment of this. But there is nothing special about this building. Let that sink in. There is nothing special about this building. 
What is special are the people that assemble in this building. And wherever you assemble, a church comes together, and that place becomes special because you are there, not the building. So if you assemble in a picnic uh, hut at the park, all of a sudden that pavilion becomes a church. It becomes a special place because you're there. You are what make it special, not the building. But many of us grew up in church contexts where the building became sacred and it became an idol. And so there were certain things you would do outside the building that you would never do inside the building. There were some words that you used at school or in college or at work, some bombs that came out of your mouth that you won't see that in the church. Grandma will slap you. But you say it out there, nobody really cares. But don't say it in the church. Why? Because the church is a sacred space now. The building, God will zap you, right? Like, you know, uh, somebody told me one time years ago, they said, if I ever walked into a church, my feet would burn off. I've been walking into churches for a long time since then, after I got saved, and, and so far, so good. But, but many of us grew up with that idea. Like, I remember one time when I was a, a kid, I, I was so mad, because I wore a baseball cap all the time, like a, like a hat, all, all the time growing up when I was a a young teenager, early teenager. And uh, in fact, my grandma used to always tell me, my granny said, she said, you're going to go bald if you always wear a hat. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm not. There's no bald people in our family on either side. <laughs> All the guys are like, I'm taking it off right now. Taking it off right now. <laughs> yeah, and so moral to the story, listen to your granny. But I came in wearing a baseball cap because I always had a baseball cap on. You know, it, it, it hid my mullet. And so I, I always had a baseball cap on. And so um, I lived in a trailer. I had a mullet. Anyway, I always had my baseball cap on, and my granddaddy got so mad at me because I walked in the church with a baseball cap and kicked me out of the church. I was so mad. You can wear a baseball cap anywhere else, basically, but not in the church building. Many of us came from these backgrounds where the church building became an idol, and you actually started to love the building more than you love the people. That is a frequent problem. And when you go back to the building of the original temple, what you may or may not have ever caught on to, I, I have taught this before, but it's been a little while here. Um, when you go back to the building of the original temple, you may be surprised to find out that it actually wasn't God's idea and he didn't want it. For that very reason, it becomes an idol. So uh, let's just go there real fast. Second Samuel chapter 7. Um, this is where uh, David is, 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 is deciding to build the temple. It's going to be his plans. Solomon's going to build it, but David's going to create the architecture, the plans. He's going to get the resources for it. Uh, 2 Samuel 7 says, After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, so he's bored. You get in trouble when you're bored. Anybody else? I get in trouble when I'm bored. I'm not bored very often, but when I do, it's dangerous. He said to Nathan the prophet... Here I am living in a house of cedar. David lived in what they call the cedar palace. It would have been the, it would have been the Biltmore of his day. It would have been the, the biggest house in his area. And he lived in the cedar palace and said, here I am living in this house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. If you know your biblical history, you know that, that there was the tabernacle. It was a tent. It was a, very much like a temple, but it was made out of tents, and it would just move and travel with the people because they were transient. They're exiles. They're coming out. They didn't have a land uh, at first, and so they were going from place to place, and the tabernacle just traveled with them. So he says, he says listen, I got this house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. That's a horrible prophet. He didn't pray about it. He didn't fast. He didn't seek God. He's just like, David, you're God's man. What you do seems to work out for God. So if it's in your mind, it must be God's will. Go for it, right? That's how I, that's how I pictured it, at least. But then that night, go to your next verse right there. Then that night, but that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. 
So now he's either seeking the Lord or God's giving him a dream or something like that. And it says, go tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Everybody has a gift of prophecy. Seek God before you prophesy. You could get in trouble. <clears throat> go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people ever, why have you not built a house for Israel? Why have you not built a house of cedar for me? Sorry. Have I ever commanded anybody? Now, if you were to keep reading, and I encourage you to do that, you will find that God quickly twists it and then starts saying, listen, I don't want you to build me a house. I'm actually going to build a house for you, David. And out of your house, meaning household, your offspring, there will come a Messiah who will change the world. And he starts twisting it and says, I'm going to build a house for you. And what David was interested in, in a physical dwelling, God was interested in, in a spiritual passing on. Are you with me? So, so, so you see this right here. And, and did God bless the temple? Yeah, his presence came on the temple. It was the same thing as, as, as God never wanted them to have a king, but they wanted a king. And so God said, listen, if you want a king, then you can get a king. And it's not my will, but I'll allow you to do it. Same thing happens with the temple. Um, and, and just like with a king, negative things come with it. But here's the thing that I want you to see. God always preferred, he has always been mobile, and he preferred to be mobile. That was always God's will. That was always his plan. He wanted to be mobile, and you see it right there with the story of David. He liked the tabernacle set up better than the temple set up. The tabernacle could travel. The tabernacle could go anywhere you wanted it to go. The temple was stationary. It was stagnant. It was in one location. Are you with me? So just as I said often happens, what happens is you build a temple, you spend all the money on it, and it becomes an idol. And so fast forward to the time of Jesus. By the time Jesus steps on the scene, the, ta- the temple has been there for a long time. And it is sacred. It is mysterious. It has these mysterious people that work in it called priests that are sacred. They're special. They're a special class of people. And, and these priests are working inside of it in this, this incredible building that would have been so much larger than anything they had ever seen at that time. They had incredible architecture that was so beautiful. Now we go to the temple and we love the temple more than we love the God of the temple. And so the temple starts to become an idol. And one of the worst things you could do is blaspheme the temple or say something negative about the temple. Don't you dare say something negative about the temple. The temple is a representation of our nation. Well, we really can't, there's there's nothing that we have in the United States that even comes close to touching this love they would have for the temple. It was a symbolic thing of God's presence with them and their their iconic class as God's chosen people of the Jews. There was nothing we could even compare. If there were anything that might be on a minute scale, it would be what happened a while back with the Capitol building and people going into the Capitol building and across America, people were like, you can't do that. Well, people that use politics as their religion, are you with me, just got ultra offended at that because people went into their sacred space. But, but that's the closest thing we have to that, of saying that's wrong. People shouldn't do that. That's the closest thing that we have uh, to it nowadays. But at that time period, if you had the audacity to, to talk negatively about the temple, you, been, you might as well have been slapping your mom, right? I mean, it's like, that's, that's a big deal. And then comes Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 12, go to this verse. I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. 
Jesus, come on, man. Nothing is greater than the temple. The temple is everything. It's God's covenant with the people. It shows, it demonstrates it. The temple is like our place. Jesus said, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Can I tell you there's something greater than this building that's here? It's called you. You are more valuable than this building. And when any church gets that mixed upside down, we end up hurting people and blessing a building. The building becomes an idol and you become something that gets trampled. That is not our heart. That's not the way we will ever function in this church. So first of all, that's like strike one. Jesus said, what? Something greater than the temple? The temple is the greatest. What's greater than the temple? Jesus. And then in John 2, Jesus, the, uh, the Jews responded to him, what sign will you show us to prove your authority to do all these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. Now Jesus is referring to himself, but they didn't see it that way. They see him referring to the temple. So once again, you just said, what? You're going to destroy what? You ain't touching our temple. You ain't touching. It's a sacred cow now, right? It's a sacred place. You're not touching that. So he's got two strikes. In Matthew 24, he gets the big third strike. Jesus left the temple. He's walking right there beside it and walking away with his disciples. Came up to them, or they came up to him uh, to call his attention to its buildings. So they're like, look at this incredible temple, Jesus. Look what has been built here. This is incredible. And Jesus said these words. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly I tell you. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Strike three, Jesus. And if you know anything about, if you know anything about the death of Jesus and why he was crucified, part of the reason why he was crucified is that he had the audacity to speak against the temple. How could you, Jesus? What are you thinking? But this crazy thing happened. It's this, this prophecy that Jesus gives right here that it's going to be torn down happens sometime in the mid-30s, sometime in that time period. He's about to be crucified. It's at the end of his life. Nobody knows an exact date. But we do know the date that the temple was actually destroyed. So Jesus prophesied this thing that they thought was insane. That was incredible. That could never happen, Jesus. Have you seen the temple? We will guard the temple with our lives. But 35 years later-ish, after that time when Jesus prophesies it, the Romans are so frustrated with the Jewish people at this point that they come together attacking the very heart of the Jewish people, the temple. And they come and as priests would stand on the roof of the temple and cry out to God to rescue them, and zealots would surround the temple and try to protect it as soldiers, the Romans would come through and slaughter every one of them, slaughtering all the priests that were on the roof, killing every one of them, setting fire to the temple, destroying everything that would burn. But then they gave this crazy order, a nonsensical order, something that had never been done before, and I don't know if it's ever been done since. They were so frustrated with the uprisings that had gone on with the Jews that they gave the order to topple over the stones on the Temple Mount to actually push them off the side. These aren't, these aren't cinder blocks, y'all. <laughs> these are, I mean, some of them are incredibly large stones. It takes work. It took sweat. And they're toppling over the stones. What Jesus had prophesied just happened. And there's a word that we use sometime for this because from that day to this day, you no longer have sacrificial offerings not physical sacrifices. Some people are like, how come the, the Jews don't sacrifice lambs or sheep or pigeons or what have you anymore? There's no temple. Not, not characteristic. And so from that day to this day ended what was referred to or is referred to as the temple era. The temple is gone. 
It's funny that what Jesus said started happening within a very short amount of time. So <clears throat> this temple changes, and when that changes, it sets up this whole new paradigm. It had already happened before that with the coming of the Pentecostal, uh, the, the coming of the church at the day of Pentecost. It had already happened before that, but now the world is starting to see it because there is no temple. They're starting to see that you are the temple. And as a Christian, you are now a mobile tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. Which, for the record, was God's plan all along. <laughs> he wanted to be mobile all along. That's why 1 Corinthians, Paul would say, Do you not know that your bodies are temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? That now, get this, you are the very mobile tabernacle that God desired in the beginning, and now there are little tabernacles running all over the earth. <laughs> you become that tabernacle. It's this incredible thing, which has all these, all these things. We, we could probably talk for an hour on this, and I know some of you are already at Denny's in your mind, so I don't want to go there. But, but think about it. In that time period, if you were to blaspheme the temple, if you were to say something negative against the temple, like you could be killed for it. Right. How dare we say something about somebody else that's a believer? The gossiping and the backbiting and the ugliness and the hatred and the, and the celebrity pastor stuff where somebody does something stupid and everybody pounces, that should be no place in the church. Yeah. It's ignorant. You would never talk against the temple, but now you're the temple. So it's, that doesn't mean we don't correct and rebuke. That's biblical. But it does mean we're not just gossiping and backbiting and being ugly towards each other. That's the dumbest thing in the world. And you know what? In the temple, it was sacred. It was holy. There were certain things you brought into the temple and certain things you didn't bring into the temple. If you are the walking manifestation of the temple of God, you got to be careful of the things you allow in your ear gate and your eye gate. You got to be careful of the things you allow into your soul because you are a temple. Some of our temples are trashed. Let's be real. But it's time to sweep them clean. You are this temple of God. And the Spirit of God that once took up residence in the temple now takes up residence in you. And this makes you incredibly sacred. Incredibly sacred. You know, the value of something is not in the container, it's in what's in the contained. It's not in the container. You could have a cheap container with something valuable inside. You got a, a thermos with gold inside of it, a $10 thermos with, with uh, you know, lots of gold. It's, it's what's inside that makes it valuable. This is why we got to stop this nonsense around America about color of skin and backgrounds and, and education levels. What's on the outside, it's what's on the inside that makes you valuable. I, I learned some years ago that, uh, you, know, you know, Air Force One is the, the plane that the, the, the president flies on. And so it's a very important plane because the president flies on it. And so you have to have lots of extra safety checks and whatever, you know, it's obviously a, a special place. But I didn't always know until years ago, I found out that Air Force One is any plane that the president rides on. It's not just, I thought it was like one plane or you know, a few planes or whatever that were the president's planes, but it's not. It, it's any, if, 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 if he gets in a little Cessna right. and leaves from Vandenberg Airport right down the street, that little Cessna just became Air Force One. Yep. The value of that plane is not the plane, it's in the passenger that the plane carries. Right. Your value is in the passenger that you are carrying the very Holy Spirit of God. You are a temple. You are a temple. And that should change everything about the way we think about ourselves and each other. 
The things we allow into ourselves, the things we allow out of ourselves, the way we contact other people, because that spirit of God that once took up residence in the temple now takes up residence in you. Kristen, can you go to that next slide, please? Um, yeah, you are a priest. That's the second point. You are a priest. You are a priest. What did that verse say? Verse 9 says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. So not only are you a temple, but you're also acting as a priest. What did the priest do? The priest, priest had kind of two jobs, one job, but it, it kind of culminated in two ways, primarily. Uh, the priest would speak on behalf of God to people and speak to be God on behalf of people. The priest is the conduit on earth, and that's still to this day the way many people think of priests. The priest is the conduit on earth between God and man, right? right? So many religions, if you want to go to God, you go to the priest. Now, it shouldn't be that way in Christianity, but let's be real for a second. It is. Many people think if you need to have a word from God, you got to go see Pastor Brent, or really Pastor Ada, because she's way more spiritual than I am. <laughs> and so if you need a word from God, go to the man of God. Listen, I, I'm glad that I have gifts, that our pastors have gifts, that God uses us in certain ways, but you do not need to go to me as a priest to get to God. Jesus, in the book of Hebrews, Jesus becomes the high priest once and for all. So you go to Jesus as the high priest, not to Brent, not to Pastor Ken. You go to Jesus, not Pastor Kieran, right? You go to Jesus, right? But, but, but if you are going to operate as a priest, that means that you are now speaking God's will to people and taking people to God through prayer. Yep. When's the last time you did that in the cubicle? In your house, in your car, on the long drive with that person. Because what tends to happen is we think ministry, we, we've been taught, I'm gonna have to do a whole series or something on this at some point, but we've been taught a lie that we can have our private values but not public truth and that Christianity is not public truth. That is a complete lie. It's a very modern idea and it's only Western. It only works inside of the West. And so we've been bought into this lie, because most of us have been born into it and breathed it all of our life, that, 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 that Christianity or your religion or your relationship with the Lord is a private thing, and it shouldn't touch the public sphere. Who told you that? It infiltrates everything we do, and certainly we don't want to bombard people, be ugly towards people, pushy with people. That's not it at all. But here's the simple fact. You can help people. And when your coworker is going through a hard time, one of the ways is, hey, how can, can I pray with you about that? Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not hard to be a priest. Yeah. Can I pray with you about that? Remember this thing we used to talk about a lot, pain or problems equal? Prayer. Some of you got it. Pain or problems equal? Prayer. So when you see pain or problems, you, you pray. You, you take them to the Lord. It's not hard. Rarely does somebody actually say, no, don't pray for me. And if they do, that's awesome. Like, they, that's, that's cool. Like, you know, I'm not going to force you. To, <laughs> I'll pray for you. You can't tell. Stop me. Whatever. But, but you know what I mean. And then the other side of it, when's the last time you heard from God about a matter and then shared it with somebody? Because the first part is easy. It's relatively easy to pray for somebody. I don't know, maybe for some of you it may not be. That's a big step. But, but for, for others, that's not that hard. But when's the last time you said, God, what are you saying about this situation? Yeah. And then I'm going to speak that over the person. Ooh, ooh. Because that leads into this third point. You are a proclaimer of God's praises. 
Because what did that verse go on to say in the second half? He said, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, all that. And then he says, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Uh-oh. <laughs> the reason you're chosen. Yes! I'm a royal priesthood. Yes! Most Christians are like, yeah! But the reason is so that you can declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. It's not so you can go, yep, I'm chosen. I'm a temple. You declare praises because you are a priest and a priest preaches. Now, I mean priest like in the pastor sense. It's a funny thing when we talk about um, a, a pastor and stuff like that because as soon as you have a title in front of your name, it comes with responsibilities and so most of us run from that title. <laughs> when, when, uh, many years ago, I was um, 20 years old, sold out for Jesus, knew nothing, but I was, I was excited about Jesus. And this crazy church and this crazy pastor said, I want you to be our youth pastor. I was not married. I had not gone to Bible college. I had not gone to cemetery, I mean seminary. I mean, I, I, just, I knew nothing. <laughs> and so they're like, we want you to be our youth pastor. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. They didn't pay me anything. It was beautiful. It was, it was a great, you know, it worked out. I knew nothing. They paid me nothing. It was like, you know, <laughs> they paid me, but it was like, I found out years later that it was a part-time package that they offered me full-time because I was so young and dumb. Anyway, so they paid me part-time to be a full-time youth pastor. Anyway, so, so, so they, and it was funny because they gave me this title all of a sudden. I'm a 20-year-old kid. Like, I haven't even, even met Ada yet. I'm a 20-year-old kid. They gave me this title, Pastor. Pastor Brent. Immediately things shifted. Yeah. All of a sudden, there was responsibilities that came with that title that were not fair. <laughs> so I'll never forget, true story, um, like literally the first week that Pastor Brent is Pastor Brent, whatever that means. I got to give it a title. This mom comes to me who has like a 13-year-old that's rebellious and running away every other weekend and, you know, like the whole nine yards. And she's like, I want you to counsel my daughter. Are you counseling your daughter? What is that even? And I'll never forget it. I had the whole, I had, I've had many knockdown drag out fights with God over the years. And that was one of the knockdown drag out. That was one of the early ones. Because I'm like, God, what am I doing here? Like, I don't know what to say to this girl. Like, who am I? But I discovered that I have gifts that aren't always used until they're necessary. I'll come back to some thoughts, but let's go to chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse uh, 10 and 11. Skip over two chapters, same idea that he's talking about, but I want you to see this. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. So first of all, you have received a gift. Second of all, you need to use it to serve others because you're a minister and ministers minister. It's what we do. So, so to serve others. Can, can, I, can I pause right there too and say this? Most of the time when we preach this kind of stuff in the American church and in the West in general, most of the time we say things like serve each other and what we really meant is serve in the church or what we really mean. And so like we need kids workers and so we're like, you know, God's called you to serve, serve in the church. We need kids workers. That, that's awesome. We do need kids workers so go serve with them. But we always do, right? We always need volunteers. But this is not the context of what he's talking about. And it's also what hinders us to make this into a sacred space instead of making our ministry sacred because he's saying that you go out and you serve those around you through the gifts that you've got. So you serve your coworker, your cousin who drives you crazy. You serve the people around you because of the gifts God has... See, see this is so weird because we grew up in an America that said the gifts of the Spirit are for the church. 
They are for the church, not inside the church only. You are the church. They are for you to take out there. So, so, so you have been given gifts to serve others. Okay? As faithful stewards of God's grace, it is in, in its various forms. If anyone speaks, preaches, shares, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. When's the last time you shared the very words of God with somebody next to you? I don't just mean the Bible. That's important. I'm not taking away from that. But I mean gifts of wisdom, gifts of knowledge that you feel like the Holy Spirit is downloading in you that you can share with somebody else to help them. <laughs> They should do as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. My last point, you are a gifted minister. You are a gifted minister. You are a gifted, you have been given gifts to minister. But many times we don't know the gifts we've been given because we've never been forced to utilize them. So, 20-year-old kid, become the youth pastor, it's a little church, and all of a sudden I'm expected to counsel somebody. I don't know how to counsel somebody. So what do I do? Jesus! I have no idea what to say to this crazy girl. Like, I have no idea. Like, you gotta get me out of this, or you gotta do something, but God, I got put in this spot, because the pastor said I'm a pastor, and now I don't know what I'm doing. And all of a sudden, as I start to counsel with somebody, I realized that I have gifts that I've never used until it's forced to come out of me. But it was not forced to come out of me until I realized that I'm a pastor. We're going to talk at length about this next week, so come back next week. It's going to be awesome. But, but, but you got to see this. You are a pastor. People hate that title. I don't blame you. I don't like the title either. I try not to use it as much as possible. In fact, in, in small group leadership, Pastor Kieran, they will tell you that, that, that like you should not use certain languages for small group leaders, like leaders. <laughs> People don't like the word leader. It's like, I'm not a leader. Okay, it's at your house. You're overseeing it. And one of the worst words you can use is pastor. I'm just going to break that bubble. If you are leading a small group, you're a pastor. You may not call yourself that, and that's okay, but you're a pastor. But, but, but here's, here's what I want you to do. Like, like, like we will step back when we hear certain terminology because you go, oh, that's not me. Why? Because in the American Western church, we created two classifications of people. Wow. You have priests. That's the terminology that, that Peter's using in this text. You have priests, the ones on the stage. And then you have lay people. And lay people lay around all the time. <laughs> and they expect the priest to do the work of ministry while we give or do whatever and we watch the show. <laughs> Are you with me? Yeah. Now, this is not your fault, by the way. It's not like, because my job as the priest is actually to teach you, according to Ephesians, that you are priests. That's what I'm doing right now. It's to empower you and send you out. That is my job. And the reason why the church is like that is because the preachers haven't done their job because they like sitting back and taking a salary and looking good on the stage and becoming a star. That you prefer because you can then look at them and go, oh, they're the star of the show. My preacher's the best pastor. He's the best preacher. He's ah, so good. We had a good service today. Whatever. And it goes both ways. 
Jesus came to upend that cart that we are not in the Old Testament. There is not a Moses. There is not an Abraham. There is a galaxy of stars called the Church of Jesus Christ that each one of you have been gifted to minister in your unique way to the people around you. You are my ministry. Who's your ministry? Starts in your home. Well, that's an easy one. Where does it go after that? That guy that you work next to, that, that, that woman, that boss, they are your ministry. And you have been gifted to minister to them. That's right. But until you push yourself out of the nest, you'll never know you can fly. Until you put yourself in a situation where you need God, you'll oftentimes never realize you have the gift of God. 20-year-old youth pastor, have no idea what I'm doing. Can I share your behind-the-scenes curtain pullback? I still don't know what I'm doing. It's almost 25 years later. I've been in ministry all this time, full-time ministry. Pastor in church, church growing, great things are happening. It happened to all my youth ministries, travelism, evangelism, all this stuff. I still, 25 years later, I still have not figured it out. I still, Brandon, I still have no idea what I'm doing half the time. You know why that's a good thing? Because it keeps me going, God, I have never pastored. I've never gone to a church our size. I've never attended a church that was multi-campus. I don't know what I'm doing. So it keeps me crying out to God and God pushing me out of the nest over and over and over. Oh, you got a gift in leadership you didn't know you have. You got an apostolic gift you didn't know you had. And all of a sudden these gifts start coming out of me. Why? Because I just keep stepping out. When have you stepped out? Because you are a living temple. When people encounter you, they should be encountering God. You are a priest speaking on behalf of God and taking people to God. You are a priest in that living temple. You have been gifted to minister to people. Paul used this illustration. I'm I'm done. I'll shut up. I know some of you are already in Golden Corral in your mind. But it's good because you got till 3 o'clock till the Bucks play. (laughs) And whoever said go Rams earlier, go home. Just teasing, just teasing. We love you. Go home after the service. And watch the Bucks beat the Rams. Ha! So, so Paul creates this metaphor. See, I told you I don't know what I'm doing. I just make it up as I go. Paul creates this metaphor. It's really pretty incredible. Um, and he says that we are the body of Christ. And he goes on this whole little rant about how, you know, if you don't have a nose, where's your sense of smell? If you don't have eyes, where's your sense of vision? Blah, blah, blah. He says, you are the body of Christ. And when he says, he's not talking about me. Maybe I'm one part. I'm like, I'm like a, a hair on your knuckle. But you are, so, so like you are the eyes of the body of Christ. We need you to see. You are the ears of the body. Javier, you're like the ear of the body of Christ. Like I need you to hear from God for me. Right, right. Um, I'm like, Robert, you, you're like the mouth of the body of Christ. I need you to be able to speak on God's half before me, right? right? There's, there's some of you in this room, Ernie, you're like the muscle of the body. You're the bicep of Christ. That's a nice one right there. And that's why you'll jump out like this morning instantly and start cleaning up, you know, wet down the hallway because you're, you're the, so when the body of Christ is fully functioning, every one of you have a part and every part is important. People are like, oh, my, you know, part's not important. You stub your toe, your little toe. You don't think it's important until you stub it and you find out it's very important. You are the body of Christ. 
The problem is the body of Christ looks like it suffered a stroke. Things aren't working. My arm, this arm is good, but this arm is not working. Walking with a limp. Why? Because the body of Christ, there are some of you that have gotten this and you are incorporating and you're living it and you're being the minister that God's calling you to be. But there's many others of us that, like, we're struggling, man. It's, it's hard. Because it's like, it's so the whole body hurts. Get this. The whole body hurts because you haven't found your place in it. Because you haven't stepped out and realized that you are a living temple, you are a priest, you are a gifted minister, and we haven't actually lived it out. We might have a theology of it, but we haven't lived it out. Again, we're going to take this a lot further next week. Don't leave, or don't, uh, don't miss next week. But you haven't lived it out. So we end up with, with looking like we have a stroke or something. You know, being a priest is a, is a bloody thing. You're a priest of God. Being a priest is a, a, a bloody job. We don't like to talk about it. We glamorize it nowadays, but they were constantly working with blood. It's a, it's a bloody job. It's not an easy job. It's dirty. Sometimes what causes a stroke is the lack of blood. Years ago, um, one of the first big miracles we ever saw in our church, there might have been a few of you here that might have been there. There was a lady in our church by the name of Josephine. Uh, Josephine attended our church for years until she kind of retired and went to live with her, her uh, daughter and son-in-law on the other coast. But um, Josephine was the sweetest lady. She was awesome. I miss Josephine. But Josephine, in the first months we were at the church, I don't know how long, it was very early. This is the first big miracle I remember seeing in our church. It's still a small little church, one service over on Kings Avenue. And I remember after the service, um, I was sitting back, like, talking to somebody, like, where the chairs are, and my wife was up praying for Josephine with a couple other ladies. There might have been some ladies here that were with her, and my wife was praying for Josephine because she had had a stroke, and half of her face was drooping. You know what I'm talking about? Like, and, and so it was like she would smile, and you only got half the smile and half the eye squint that comes with a smile. Half the face was drooping. She had a stroke, had blood loss. When the blood does not get to a part of the body, you'll end up in a stroke. When the blood does not get to a spiritual part of the body, you will end up in a stroke. The blood is not only what saves you, it's what cleanses you. It's what, it's what allows you to be a priest for God. And so I'm sitting back and I'm watching as my wife is praying for her and some other ladies again. And I sat there and I watched as her face came back up to normal. In a matter of, I don't know, 10 minutes of prayer or something like that. And I watched it as her face just kind of rose and came back. I don't know who this is for in this room, but some of you, it is time to bring the blood back into your life. I'm not trying to be weird, but the Holy Ghost, the blood of Jesus Christ, the restoration power of the blood. If you cut the circulation off to any part of your body for a long period of time, it gets numb and tingly and uncomfortable, and you've been in that place for way too long. It's time to apply the blood of Jesus to your life all over again that saves you, that restores you, but also who empowers you to be the minister God has called you to be. Inside of that temple, it was a dirty, nasty place with blood and animals being sacrificed all the time. It is not always pretty when you go out and do ministry. It's not always going to be an altar call that, like, everybody's sweet and gentle and nice when you pray for people at work but if you will do it we can become the body of Christ that brings revival that restores the position of the church that brings back this New Testament idea that this building is not sacred but everywhere you go is sacred because you are carrying the Holy Spirit in you 
Amen. Would you stand up with me around the room? <clears throat> yeah, our prayer team, you guys can make their way up front. I'm, I'm done. There are, there are some words, um, as a preacher, who has not only preached for many years, but has also listened to probably hundreds of thousands of sermons over the years. There are, there are some words that, that are really good, like you're like, yeah, that's good. But if you don't actually walk out and do anything different, it's completely wasted. This is not about a theology. This is about a practice. Again, we're going to talk more about it next week. Don't miss next week because really these two messages are going to piggyback off of each other. God is not trying to create a star. He's trying to create a galaxies of stars all over the Tampa, Brandon, Varico, Plant City, Riverview area, all over that you would light up. And it lights up because we realize who we are in Christ. And then we force ourselves to step out of our comfort zones. And it's when you do that that you will discover that you have gifts you didn't know you had. There are some of you in this room, you're, you have a prophetic gift you don't know you had. Some of you have an evangelistic gift you didn't know you had. Some have an apostolic gift. Some have a pastoral gift of loving people. So some, some have uh, uh, these teaching gifts. You have gifts that you may never realize you have until you step out. Again, step out. This is, not a, this is not a message of theology. This is a message of practice. If you don't change anything you do this week, I wasted my breath. The way you look at me or Pastor Ada or Pastor Ken or Pastor Kieran or any of our team is the way the world should look at you. You may not like the title pastor, neither do I, but it is a mantle that rests on you to be a minister to this community. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you consider subscribing and sharing this on all your social platforms? If you are moved by the message and would love to share your testimony, please email it to amen at myariseChurch.com. I pray you leave here feeling encouraged. See you next time.